All right, so welcome. Um, I'm just going to start with an introduction just to kind of get our minds thinking. Um, Over the last few weeks, we've been reading a lot about uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke as Paul has been, you know, journeying on in his second missionary journey. And as you kind of observe the map on the slide, you can kind of visualize a lot of that journey, um, which included, you know, places like Antioch. He traveled to Galatia and Mysia, Troas, and just really that whole Macedonia region, which includes Philippi and Thessalonica, some of these places we've been learning about, Berea, Athens, and now... For our lesson today, he's in Corinth, okay? So this is uh, this second missionary journey, by the way, for Paul was uh, very difficult. Um, it, it, remember, if you think back, it, it just was filled with a lot of intense hardships. Uh, we think back to when Paul was flogged and he was thrown into prison in Philippi. We think of the time when Paul was in Thessalonica and he was chased out, Right? We think of um, the time that he had this wonderful visit with people and with those noble-minded Bereans, and yet, you know, those Jews just chased him right out. Um, And so he was uh, up against quite a a bit of hardship, and eventually, you know, when Paul made it to Athens from those places, which is really kind of the nearest context for our lesson today... um, it, it, although his spirit was provoked because he saw a lot of idol worship and things like that, um, there were some people in Athens that got saved. That's what's always so encouraging. As the word goes forth and it spreads, even in difficult places, you see how the Lord works through that. But let's just say that in Athens, the reception wasn't that great, <laughs> right? So from Athens, Paul is now heading to Corinth, and that's about a 51-mile journey. And mind you, a lot of the times he walked. He walked that journey. Um, And so we find Paul alone in Corinth. And by his own admission from his letters to the Corinthians, he was very weak. He was very fearful. But because of his great devotion to Christ and the gospel, he just forges on, hoping to spread the gospel, even amongst a people group who lived in an infamously immoral city. And so let's talk about that city for a minute, because I think it's important for you to have some stats, as it were, on Corinth to kind of wrap your mind around uh, a cultural context. Um, yes. And so first, the, the first thing that you need to know about Corinth is it was a trading town, okay? So I want you to think about, I want you to envision uh, traders and sailors, uh, people like that. It was a trading town. And during the time that Paul was there, uh, sadly, Corinth could be likened to a uh, red light district. So it it wasn't uh, a place you really necessarily would have wanted to visit. In fact, a lot of commentators that I read during my study said that Corinth was such an immoral city that to be called a Corinthian was a a slang term that was synonymous uh, with uh, just being immoral. So you can imagine um, in this town there was just lots and lots of debauchery, okay? And Paul would have observed so many things. For example, just one example, there was a huge temple in Corinth that was dedicated to Aphrodite. Maybe some of you have heard of her. And um, she's known as the goddess of love. And she had a temple that housed about a 1,000 prostitutes, okay? And this temple was located on a huge hill that was overlooking the city. So there was no missing it. 
it was a very prominent feature. And if we have the picture up there, we need to go to the Corinth as a city. So hit the slide one more time. There we go. And if you see that picture up there, uh, that is a temple that's there now. I've been to Corinth, and I took this about four years ago. And this is a temple that Paul would have seen also. But that's not the, the temple to Aphrodite. That's actually the temple that's dedicated to the sun god Apollo. And it was inside the city. It was close to the marketplace. Um, and it is evident by all the ruins that primarily in Corinth, what Paul would have seen would have been more the traditional Greek gods, okay? But having said that, there was definitely a Jewish uh, settlement there. And what's kind of cool is, you know, when they do excavations, they find, um, they find those kinds of things. And so there was a Jewish settlement. And the second picture up there, that's, that's Todd Boland. Some of you might know him. He teaches at the Master Seminary and, or at the college. And he um, is reading Acts 18, 1 to 17 in that picture. So I had to include it, of course. Um, it was also very cold that day, you can tell. Um, but we, we know from Paul's letters to the Corinthians, we know a lot about them. We know that not only do we have this, this issue with just idolatry, but he talks about their behaviors, what they were like before Christ. He talks about the fact that they were, um, they were engaged in idolatry and adultery and homosexuality and stealing and covetousness and drunkenness and swindling, just to name a few. So this really is not the kind of city you would have taken your family on for vacation, <laughs> okay? This was a difficult, difficult place. But let's just pause for a moment, because I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes. I don't want you to look at today's lesson. It's just a bunch of information that you're taking in. Um, Paul was very devoted to Christ, um, and, his, and this, just this great commission work. And so we're really getting a glimpse into what it's like to be a missionary who is experiencing some really tough days. And I'll give you a few examples of that. For example, Paul is in one of the most immoral cities that um, one could visit in that time, right? We said that a little bit of that already. You also need to take into account that he is alone at this point. Silas and, and uh, Timothy and Luke are not with him. They're still in Macedonia. So he's alone. He is a missionary alone. And then prior to him even coming to Corinth, he had been, you know, he had been beaten. He had been rejected by a lot of people. And as we're going to find out shortly, Paul is out of money. You know, he's broke. He's out of money. And it's not going to be long before we realize that the unbelieving Jews are rejecting and harassing Paul once again. And most of the people that I read and consulted in my study time said that if there was ever a time that Paul would be discouraged in his ministry, this is the time. Okay, so you're kind of getting a a picture and a glimpse of what he's going through. And I'm not sure what you're going through. It's been a tough year, right? It's been a tough last year. A lot of you probably last year struggled with some sickness, A lot of you last year probably maybe lost a job. A lot of you last year may have even lost somebody that you love very much. And so we can identify with just going through tough times. And so really my aim this morning, more than anything, is that by the time our time up here together is done, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to walk away encouraged. I want you to be hopeful as you begin to observe Paul's providence Uh, not Paul's providence, God's providence, um, unfold in Paul's seemingly difficult life, right? Um, Realizing that we serve the same God. 
The same God who is always with us, who always helps us, and um, always takes care of his faithful servants. And I also hope that you're going to be inspired, and you're going to be challenged, as I was, by Paul's devotion, and his faithfulness, and his gratitude to the Lord and to his word. And so I actually pulled out uh, quite a few ways in which God in his providence cares for Paul. But the first way is that uh, he cares, through, cares for Paul through the co-laborers and even just Paul's calling, um, which was really fascinating. So go to Acts 18 now. And let me just read 1 to 8 to kind of get us in the text here. Um, After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed and he shook out his garments, he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of all and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. I mean, how encouraging. Um, so as I've already mentioned, Paul did arrive in Corinth alone, but as we read in verse 2, he met a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. There we go. Is that the right one? Yeah, that's good. Let's, we'll go to the next click, and we'll see Aquila and Priscilla, at least an uh, artistic rendering, rendering of it. But what an encouragement it must have been for Paul to meet a faithful couple right? A lay couple in the same trade, um, which was tent making. It's, it's really kind of a, a trade that refers more to, to leather working, so that he probably made tents literally out of leather, <laughs> okay? If you can try to imagine that. And most likely, um, you know, it's an interesting trade because most likely, um, uh, you know, this is something that he learned from his dad. Um, it was pretty customary for Jewish boys to learn their dad's trade, and I think what's interesting is just the contrast between an ordinary job that he had as a tent maker compared to what he used to be when he had just was so privileged and how he was raised um, in the Jewish faith. And so here we have Paul. He's in Corinth. He's working alongside this dear married couple. And many commentators believe that um, Aquila and Priscilla were Christians already. Okay, They were Christians when Paul met them. And the reason why they believe that is because they had left Italy when Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. I think we touched on that a little bit when we studied through the book of Romans. But we've got great historians out there, and one such historian by the name of Suetonius tells us that at the time that the reason why the Jews were kicked out of Rome was because there was a lot of rioting over Christ. Okay, so we know that they were probably involved in that. And the other, the other thing you've got to keep in mind um, is that Paul talks about baptizing Gaius and Crispus in the letter to the Corinthians, but he never mentions any of that about Aquila and Priscilla, right? Because usually you, you see that, that there's a baptism that goes on after one's led to Christ. So we can assume that by the time they had met, they were believers, and they were a dear couple. They began to be co-laborers with Paul. Uh, for the gospel in Corinth and, quite frankly, in other places. 
in Scripture. We learn about them becoming very close friends. Um, and so much so that when Paul finally leaves Corinth, he takes them with him, doesn't he? And takes them to Ephesus. And so just barely into Acts 18, and we already observe clear, uh, clearly the unfolding of God's provision in Paul's life despite these challenges. Um, for example, you see God's provision um, if for Paul in one of the most immoral cities by bringing him into contact with other believers, something to be thankful for. We see God's provision for Paul in providing a place to stay, right? We see God's provision for even providing for Paul a job um, so that he could make money to live um, while he's in Corinth. And so I want you to allow that to encourage you Allow it to soak into your soul because it's a blessing to read that God takes care of his people. He really does. He takes care of his people. And and all too often, I think what happens is we get too busy and we forget to really meditate on that. And so, you know, just allow yourself to kind of pause for a moment and to thank the Lord for his provision in your own life. There may be things that are going on in your life right now that are very difficult, but you know what? There's a lot of things in your life that are going good, right? Amen? Yeah, yeah. And so I want you to ask yourself right now, what can you thank God for today? What can you thank God for today, and how has he provided for your needs? It's a great question to ask your heart, and you should ask it daily, um, because there's so many good things. Um, But as we continue to explore the, the text, We also learned that though Paul worked during the week, he spent a lot of time in the synagogue, didn't he? Reasoning in the scriptures um, and just hoping to persuade or specifically um, to have a dialogue with his own countrymen, the Jews, and some Greeks seeking to explain and give evidence that uh, Christ had to suffer, that he had to rise again from the dead, and that Jesus was Israel's Lord and Messiah and the Savior from sin and hell. So Paul becomes this wonderful real-life example for every believer. He lived what he preached. You know, he was faithful. He was not ashamed of the gospel, for he knew it was the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, even in the immoral town of Corinth. Okay? Paul was still faithful to preach and persuade, and he is a faithful example of a faithful testimony of devotion to God. But soon, two other co-laborers arrived in Corinth to save the day, Silas and Timothy. Um, And that must have been super encouraging to Paul to have his comrades back with him. And we learn that they brought a financial gift from Macedonia. Um, And so we know this to be true because we have the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians. And so if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, you'll see that evidence. And just again, another example of God's providence to Paul so that he could now be completely devoted to his calling, right? Which was to preach the word. But we find out that as soon as Paul devoted himself to the word, his critics happened on the scene. (laughs) And we learn that the unbelieving Jews began to organize themselves once again and to oppose Paul's teaching, denying that Jesus was the Christ. And so at this point, Paul finally had enough, so he did something quite dramatic, I think. (laughs) I like how Luke kind of um, included this dramatic instance, and he shook the dust off his garments, which was actually a gesture that the Jews did when they entered the Holy Land. Um, They would often take their sandals off and, and shake the dust off their feet. And so symbolically, what they were doing is they were leaving Satan's domain where the Gentiles lived, right? 
So they, in essence, wanted to shake the Gentile cooties off before they entered the holy city. But what a contrast we have here in this text. Because instead of shaking the dust where the Gentiles lived, Paul is shaking his garment out where the Jews lived. And now he's saying, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Can you imagine what the Jews must have thought when he said that? (laughs) Um, But even more shocking, he said, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent or I am clean. So what does he mean by that? Well, cool, in a great way, we were just given a chance to... Uh, examine Ezekiel 33 to kind of help better understand what Paul is talking about. And basically, um, in Ezekiel, he is, um, he is talking about a watchman, right, who sees a sword coming down upon the land. And so he blows his trumpet to warn the people. They hear it, but they decide to ignore it. They just sit there, and they delude themselves into thinking no enemy is coming. And according to commentators, the sword spoken of in Ezekiel's day was God's sword of discipline when they were, that came through the Babylonians. The watchmen are the prophets, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the people are those who heard the message but said, God is not going to remove us from our land. We don't need to listen to them. Paul was hoping by saying the phrase, your blood be on your own head, was like saying, The same thing is going to happen again. So repent. Place your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he is the Messiah. You have read and you have heard about him your whole life in the scriptures. Don't reject him. Don't ignore the trumpet call. But if you do, your blood be on your own heads. For judgment is coming and you will be responsible for your own fate. Sobering. Sobering when you contemplate that truth and consider that the Father has been speaking to us about Christ for a long time. He spoke to us first through the prophets, and then through the Old Testament, then through Christ himself, and now he speaks to us in the New Testament. So I pray that if there is anyone here who is like the children of Israel, they've been hearing the message of salvation over and over and over again from the scriptures, but choosing to ignore ignore it and think that you have time, I beg you, don't ignore the message today. Don't ignore it. It's clear from his word that Christ is coming back, and he's coming back to rapture his church. And you know what? Christ says, you're going to hear another trumpet. So don't ignore the message. Take it, take it in, take it deep. But amazingly, It appears that after Paul left the synagogue with a warning and he went to the Gentile's home, which is kind of funny, he went to a home right next door to a Gentile named Titius Justus, an amazing thing happened. We find out that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, took that warning seriously and he got saved. Praise the Lord. And that must have been incredibly shocking and probably rattled the Jewish community to their core. But now we're beginning to observe the beginnings of what I would call a tent revival with people getting saved in a very immoral city, and even Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and his household, and then many of the Corinthians, um, the Lord was surely at work in the hearts of his people, even in the hearts of immoral Corinthians. And it reminded me as I was studying of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. I would invite you to turn there, because I think this is an important verse to encourage your heart with. Um, But Paul is writing to the Corinthians originally, and he says, Or do you not know... That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So although the original audience were the Corinthians, the Holy Spirit inspired these words for everyone in this room who's in Christ. Such were some of you. We often need to read that. We need to remind ourselves of that truth. We need to, feel, we need to be comforted and assured when we struggle. All right? But speaking of needing comfort and assurance, although we often think of the Apostle Paul as a super Christian, we have to realize that he was just a man. And, in fact, I think I alluded to 1 Corinthians 2, 3, which gives us some insight into how Paul was doing when he came to the Corinthians. He said that he came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so Paul himself needed encouragement from Jesus while in Corinth, and the Lord knew that. Bringing you to the second point there, captivating vision. Captivating vision. So 9 to 11... Let's read that together. And the Lord said to Paul, in the night, by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Um, So what we read about in this section is the Lord is giving Paul reasons why he need not be afraid and why he can continue on in his ministry at Corinth. And so he begins by giving Paul a command to uh, go on speaking and not to be silent. But he doesn't stop there. He also comforts Paul by giving him a promise, giving him a promise, I am with you, which immediately brings to mind Hebrews 13.5, which says um, where believers are comforted actually by the same truth, where, where the Lord says that he will never leave us nor forsake us because we are his. And so Jesus here is comforting Paul with the same truth. Paul would even testify to this truth at the end of his life. He talks about this in 2 Timothy 4, 16 to 18, where he, he goes into this whole dialogue about even though others had deserted him, the Lord stood by him and strengthened him so that he might continue to proclaim the gospel that the Gentiles might hear. And so Paul had a very captivating vision, and obviously it comforted him and it gave him eternal confidence that Christ was with him all the way to eternity. But in addition, we find in this passage that Jesus gave Paul a promise uh, for his time in Corinth. Um, The first part of verse 10 says, no one will attack you to harm you. There, there, there must have been a great peace, I think. Considering what, all Paul, what Paul went through, he must have felt a great peace that surpassed all understanding because he now knew that the nearness of his God was his good. And then finally, at the end of verse uh, 10, uh, Jesus gives Paul another reason to continue in the Great Commission work. He says, For I have many people in this city. And from my studies, I learned that the, the phrase I have is in the present active tense. It's, it's really good to know that because what Christ is essentially communicating to Paul here is that he ought to keep on preaching the good news so that no one, that no one, will, come, that no one will harm him because there, there are those who belong to Christ even though they have not heard the word yet. Encouraging. 
Paul had a very captivating vision where Christ gave Paul assurance and comfort that he was with him during this difficult time in ministry. And we'll find out, and we find out in verse 11 that Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching God's word and helping to establish a church in Corinth. And it appears that Paul's confidence had been renewed. And even though we may not see visions of Christ, we don't hear Christ talk to us audibly today, um, we ought to find great comfort in his more sure word, right? It's really important. Um, Believers today, they don't need an experience uh, to assure them of the Lord's presence and his promises to them. His prophetic word, made more sure, provides us everything we need for life and godliness, which includes encouragement and comfort and assurance and even hope when you're going through trial. Um, So be encouraged by that. All right, let's keep moving on. So, so far, we've learned that God has provided uh, for Paul through the co-laborers, new and returning. He provided him a job, financial assistance, uh, new converts, you know, Jewish and Gentile, and even an encouraging visit from Christ himself. And now, as a result, Paul responded by staying longer. I think it's the longest recorded time that he stayed in any city um, with the exception of Ephesus, but so far at this point. And he just continued to be a faithful minister of the gospel as he trusted in the Lord's providence and in his sovereignty. But the unbelieving Jews are still upset with them, aren't they? <laughs> so we've got to talk about them. So let's look at 12 to 17. Um, but while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourself. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned by any of those things. So what do we have here? From verse 12, we see that the unbelieving Jews are in an uproar, bringing Paul before this Roman council, um, whose name was Galileo, in hopes to bring accusations against him. And so here Paul stood before a judgment seat, and that's the picture I took when I was there. It was snowing that day, so I couldn't get any closer, but... Anyway, um, a judgment seat is like a bema seat. Sometimes they call it a bema seat. It's large. It's raised above the ground. It's like a stone platform. I wanted, wanted you to see a visual of it. And it often stood in the marketplace, okay? It stood in the home of, of where the proconsul actually would have lived. Um, and according to history, this guy, Galileo, was actually proconsuled in, uh, during July 8051 to 8052 for about a year. And it actually fits in perfectly with the time, with the timeline. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But here is Paul. He's being accused like he's been gobs of time before. Um, he's being accused of persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. And although Christianity wasn't outlawed or even banned in the Roman Empire at this point, the Jews, you know, per usual, are seeking to build a case against Paul in hopes that uh, Galileo will take action against him. But what happens? Is that what happened? That's not what happened. Um, Before Paul even opened his mouth, uh, Galileo speaks up. He refuses to involve himself in the religious issues there. And um, he, he, even, he went so far as to say that the case wasn't even worth being heard. Um, and so he threw it out of the court, 
drove them away, and then this poor guy, <laughs> Sosthenes, the leader of this Jewish mob, apparently was beaten right in front of the judgment seat. So now the tables are turned, and Paul was protected by Galileo, or more accurately, should we say that Jesus protected Paul? I think that's a better way to phrase it. Because remember, do you remember his promise to Paul? Yeah, they promised to be with him and not allow any harm to come to him. I think this event illustrates that we serve a God of promises. We serve a God that cannot lie. And you need to be encouraged by that. Another encouraging note to mention as it pertains to this poor fellow, Sosthenes, is at some point later, he came to Christ. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians 1.1. I mean, wow. Who would have thought that the leader of the synagogue who set out to charge Paul in front of the proconsul that day would be the very person in the city that Jesus was even talking about in verse 10 when he said, I have many people in this city. How encouraging. And I mean, it really highlights for us this beautiful truth reality that your God, our God, is sovereign. He uses all things, even a trial or a beating for his glory. He is in complete control. And works all things according to his purpose. Even turning Galileo's heart like channels of water. (laughs) Or saving a leader in the Jewish synagogue. And it's important that we recognize and acknowledge that God is the hero of the story. He is the one that orchestrated every aspect of this event according to his perfect plan. And no matter what we may face, even if it's suffering, like the Apostle Paul or Sosthenes, we can find comfort in knowing that God is working in us for his good pleasure. So come away from Paul's trial with a greater trust in God's providence and a God who is in complete control. Even if your world right now, even if our world right now is in complete chaos, right? (laughs) We find comfort in that. Well, after the God-ordained situation occurred, we learn that Paul remained in Corinth longer before he set out for Antioch, which brings us to that last point, uh, concluding journey. So let's look at that, 18 to 23. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila and Sencria. He had cut his hair, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. And now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and um, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so, you know, as we've read before, as was typical of of the Apostle Paul, it's just time to move on. You know, at some point, it's time to move on. It appears that Paul left Silas and Timothy behind to strengthen the church in Corinth while he planned to return to Antioch. But when he left, we read that he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. They traveled about 250 miles to Ephesus. That's about the distance. And then Paul left this dear ministry couple there. But the first activity that we see recorded before Paul came to Ephesus was this interesting situation about him cutting his hair. What's that all about? (laughs) Okay. Um, And we really don't know. We really don't know exactly what kind of vow this really was. But most people think that likely it was a Nazarite vow. And you know what? A Nazarite vow, it was only a vow that Jews took. Okay, so it was only for the Jews who wanted to show God that they were very grateful um, for just to him for something. 
And as Jewish history records, at the end of these vows, the Jews would take their hair and they would cut it, or the hair that they had cut, and they would present it at the temple in Jerusalem and have it burned with all the other sacrifices that were being presented at the altar. Um, And some Jews who were far away, like Paul, were given special provision to be able to complete this, this vow in the land and then to present their hair within 30 days. Now, I got a chance to talk to Brian Biedebach about this, <laughs> one of our elders here. And he says this fits in perfectly with Acts 18, 18 to 22, because after 18 months of very fruitful ministry in Corinth, it is easily presumed that Paul was very grateful to God. And so he shows his gratitude by making this vow of gratitude to God and then fulfilling it before he ships out. It's important to note that this was a voluntary vow. Not all Jews practiced it, Um, but Paul did, and he had so much to be thankful to the Lord for. And that's probably why, I mean, quite frankly, that's probably why when he arrived in Ephesus the first time, he didn't stay that long, because he was truly keeping um, a Nazarite vow, and he would have only had 30 days to get to Jerusalem, right? And so Paul had to leave his co-laborers there and then travel another 250 miles or so to Antioch, which is about 62 miles from Jerusalem. And so he went up to to go down. And I'm sure some of you were probably thinking, why is Paul keeping this Old Testament vow? He's a Christian now. What's up? (laughs) I was thinking that. Um, Well, what I found out is that, you know, Paul was a Jewish believer, right? And so we're in a very transitional time in the book of Acts. And um, sometimes, you know, as Old Testament practices are fading out, New Testament practices are coming in. And so we see that here in the vow that Paul took, um, that's that's part of that transitional time. And you're going to see it again next week when you uh, read about Apollos, which you probably read about this week because our lesson took us all the way through Acts 18. But you'll see it also in the 12 disciples. And so just know that this is a transitional time, and, you know, Nazarite vows were for Old Testament saints, and Paul still practiced it as a way to show gratitude towards God. But what about today? Um, You know, do Christians make vows to God today in the same way? Um, I would say that it's more reflected in the commitments that we make uh, to God based on what we're taught in the New Testament, like marriage, for example. That could be a good example. Um, or you could even look at like Romans 12, 1 to 2, where we're called as a collective body of believers to present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice. That's a call to the whole church to be completely devoted to the Lord. And so I think vows today are more about living a, a life that glorifies God and enjoys him forever, right? Um, and that's how we're to live our entire life. And often, if we're truly living in that way, our heart's response is going to be what? Gratefulness. And so... I think that's um, how I would answer that. But before Paul leaves Ephesus and he visits the synagogue, he tells the people there that he's going to return if God wills. And then he sets sail for Antioch, where he actually began the second missionary journey. Um, And then as he made it his habit, he left Antioch, according to verse 23, and successively passed through the Galatian region, strengthening the disciples there, and I, my comment on that is I, I think Paul definitely was an amazing evangelist, as we know, but he's an incredible discipler. He made it his aim to go back to some of these churches that he planted and to strengthen the church by building up the believers. And I, I just love that idea. I mean, not that idea, but I just love that kind of a ministry. Uh, Sean and I have traveled a lot 
for in a short-term missions kind of a way, and we've seen that in the missionaries that we support here. Um, I think back to the time we visited the Beatty Box in Malawi, and Brian said something that struck me uh, once, and I, it really, it really kind of brings this home for me. But he says, you know, when it comes to planting churches, we need to be concerned about depth, right? Deeper is better. Like the old adage, an inch wide and a mile deep is better than a mile wide and an inch deep. Malawi, where they were before they came here, and other places in the world, including America, (laughs) we need depth. We need depth because the flavor of the day is mostly health, wealth, social gospel. So when they, you know, when we when we make it our aim to support these men that preach the word so faithfully, um, they get an opportunity to teach a lot about Christ. And when they do, it nurtures stronger churches for Christ in the long run. And I think that's going to be the key for the days are growing evil, right? Yeah, more evil than even when I was a kid. But the bottom line is, people need Christ, and people need a deeper understanding of who Christ is from the scriptures. Okay, so let me wrap this up. This morning, we've learned a lot together. There's a lot more that I could say, but more importantly, there's just so many good truths about God that I want to leave you with before I end here. Um, The first truth that I want to encourage you with is, ladies, we serve a God of providence. In other words, God has a plan. He has a purpose. And, the, and he causes all things and controls all things that happen. He does as he pleases among angels and the people of earth, to Daniel says in Daniel 4.35. And we saw this providence on display as he gave Paul new friends, returning friends, a job, a vision, and just rescue from a false accusation. Secondly, we learned that we serve a sovereign God, and that's talking about his position of supreme authority. And power. He rules over everything because he made everything. God is sovereign, even in salvation. But we're still called to teach the gospel, to preach the gospel. And Paul certainly was an example of that for us in Acts 18. And finally, we learn that Paul is an example of someone who is completely devoted to Christ. We see him going from place to place, reasoning with the lost, even at great cost. We see him respond to the Lord in gratitude recognizing provisions in his life. We see him not even content with just evangelizing the lost, but going back and strengthening the believers in churches that he has planted. And so, as I said in the beginning, my prayer and my purpose in putting this lesson together was to encourage you and to nurture a higher view of God, because we need that in these times. And so I pray that these truths that you learn today will move you to act towards greater devotion to Christ, his word, and to those that God brings you that you get the privilege of ministering to. All right, can I pray for you? All right. Father God, we thank you so much for Paul's example in Acts 18 that despite great trial, Lord, he is an example for us of faithfulness and just a continued trust in you alone. And so we thank you uh, for his example, but Lord, we thank you uh, for being a God who loves and cares for his own. We thank you for ways in which you provide for us every single day. We thank you for uh, our salvation. We thank you for the many that you've yet to save. Help us to be prayerful about that, Lord, and help us to be faithful with your gospel. 
Father, I pray that um, the women here today were encouraged and they're motivated to trust you even more. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.